Every church, like every disciple, is in the middle of its own sanctification. Every church is still a work in progress. There is no perfect church. And if you find the perfect church and you go there, guess what? It's not a perfect church anymore because you showed up because you're a sinner. There is no church that does not routinely have issues that pop up. There is no church that is drama-free. Now, a church may be debt-free, but it will never be drama-free. And so since this is true, how in the world do we stay encouraged? How do you stay hopeful in a church full of sinners? Today, Paul will tell us that in the middle of the messes of our lives, in the middle of all the drama, in the middle of relational strife, in the middle of our own sanctification, he will tell us to keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. To keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. That's another way, really, of just saying, Bless the Lord. We just sang that song, bless the Lord, O my soul. That Hebrew phrase that says, bless the Lord, here's what it means. It's to take note of who he is, to take note of all of his excellencies, to refresh your memory of who God is. That's what it means to bless the Lord, O my soul. So as we were singing that, I was like marveling once again at the Spirit's work, saying, there you are again, tying the songs and the sermon together. I love that he does that. I had another thought, too, as we were singing. We were singing beautiful and doing that ooh, right? There's a lot of oohs and ahs in worship songs today, and that's, that's okay. Uh, here's what I want, though. I'm kind of over all the oohs and ahs. This is what I was thinking when we were singing. It, it gives you insight into how my brain works. I was thinking, I'm kind of tired of all the oohs and ahs songs, and I want a nice song to come out that has a, a good, robust R in it. Like, the Lord is a strong tower and mighty. R, R, R. That's where my mind went. See what happens when I get off my manuscript? This is exactly why I manuscript every week, because my brain goes places. Keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. That's what we're going to see today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7. Paul's going to use four phrases in this one verse to highlight that we should keep fresh in our memory the triumph, the R of God's grace. And when you do that, when you keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace in your life, it will bring you joy and encouragement in the middle of the messes of your life, which is where we all live. It will bring you joy and encouragement in the middle of all the drama, joy and encouragement in the middle of relational strife. It will bring you joy and encouragement in the middle of your own sanctification because you're not perfect and you're still a work in progress. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're just looking at verse 4 today. Hear the word of the Lord. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction, I am overflowing 
with joy. So there's the first phrase we're going to look at today. I am acting with great boldness towards you. Paul is being honest with the Corinthian church. I love how the NIV translates verse 4. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Paul is being open, honest, frank with this church that he planted. He's being truthful. No manipulation whatsoever. And we want to be a church here at Grace where we not only encourage one another a lot, we're going to talk about that next week, but also one where we can really be honest about everything, everything that's going on in our lives, everything that's going on in our hearts, where we can speak freely about everything. We want to be real here at Grace, the real us meeting the real Jesus of the Bible. That is how you change. Honesty about who you are and honesty about what is in your heart is an essential component to transformation. If you can't be real about who you are and what sins you struggle with, then you will be stuck and you will not get any traction at all. The real you who struggles all week long, that's who needs to show up here on Sunday. That's the you who needs encouragement. The you that yelled at your kids, the you that is jealous about another person's success, the you who resents a family member, the you who just can't get along with a coworker, the you who feels hopeless. That's the you who needs to show up here on Sunday morning. That's the you who needs encouragement from others. We don't want grace to be a place where our projected self comes to church each week, where we kind of project this unreal image of ourselves to others. We want to be real here. The real us needs the real encouragement that the real Jesus longs to give us. And that's a beautiful thing in the Lord's eyes, a real church, an honest church, a transparent church. That's a church that will make a difference in this world. And that's how Paul was with the Corinthians. He says, I have spoken to you with great frankness. And Paul is modeling that honesty here, modeling that great frankness for the Corinthian church. And even though this church has all kinds of issues, and let me tell you what, the Corinthians had all kinds of issues. Even though they are a mess, Paul has great pride in them. They have issues, they are a mess, but they are making some progress. They are dealing with some of their issues in a gospel-centered way. They're not perfect, But Paul knows that the Holy Spirit is at work sanctifying them, and so he expresses his pride in them. But notice how encouraging Paul is in the middle of verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So there's the second phrase. I have great pride in you. He has great pride in this seriously messed up church. 
The Greek is, great is my boasting. The word that Paul uses here for boast is one that he's going to use a lot later on in this letter. It means to joyously exult in, to delight in, to have confidence in something. So when Paul says he has great pride in his church, he means that he delights in them and rejoices in them. So what is it about this really messy church that makes Paul proud so that he boasts and joyously exults in them? Here's the answer. Paul is proud of the way that they responded to one of his earlier letters that he had written to them. Paul will talk about this as the chapter continues, and we're going to look at it more next week. But Paul is rejoicing that they responded in a good way to the painful letter that he wrote them Before he wrote 2 Corinthians, where he rebuked them sternly. We talked about this back in chapter 2. Paul wrote a very painful letter to them where he just called them out and told them like it was. And he feared how they're going to respond to this letter. He gave the letter to Titus. He said, Titus, here's a really rebuking letter. Take it to the church and read it to them. Titus went and did it. And Paul's biting his nails wondering what's going to happen. How do they respond? Respond. Titus comes back and says, they responded greatly to your letter. That's why Paul is proud of them here. But take a moment and take in how encouraging Paul is. He is letting this seriously messed up church know that he is proud of them. He boasts in them. He's not looking to beat them up. He wants to encourage them. And the reason he does so is because he has been encouraged by the report that Titus gave him. More on that next week. But it's important to see here that Paul has not written this church off. Now, we have a tendency to do that to people that fail us and let us down and hurt us, don't we? But Paul hasn't written this church off. They have issues But Paul believes in the rescuing, restoring, and sanctifying grace of God. Paul believes in, and he wants the Corinthians to get a fresh start, to break off their allegiance to the super apostles and simply start over, to start over in their relationship with Paul. Listen, sometimes relationships just just need a fresh start. Sometimes we need fresh starts. Maybe you need a fresh start with God today. Maybe you're dying to start over because you're dying out there living without Jesus, and you know it. Let me repeat that. Maybe you're dying to start over today because you're out there in the world dying because you are living without Jesus. Let me tell you some wonderful news. You can start over today. You can get a fresh start. All you need to do to get a fresh start is Jesus and his gospel and being honest about where you are and what's in your heart. And when you combine Jesus and his gospel with the truth of where you are and who you are in your heart, that is the beginning of healing. That's how you begin to get some traction and get moving again instead of being paralyzed. It's really amazing, but 
Paul has not closed his heart off to this church that he loves so much. They've had issues and they have issues like being yoked to some false teachers and stabbing Paul in the back, but Paul doesn't hold that over their heads. Yes, he is calling them out and confronting them about their issues. He says, I have been greatly uh, challenging you here, but he doesn't hold it over their heads or rub their faces in it. When Paul says, I am acting with great boldness, he means, I'm not afraid to confront you and call out your sin because I love you. But he follows that with, I have great pride in you. And by that, he means, I can still boast about you and boast about what the Spirit is doing in your life and point out areas of growth and evidence of grace. And so understand this, Grace. Restoration does not downplay sin, but it also does not hold sin over people's heads. Restoration doesn't downplay sin, but it also does not hold sin over people's heads. We see that here with Paul. He's not downplaying their sin. They have serious issues. But he's also not holding it over their heads. He's not minimizing their sin, but he's also not rubbing their face in it. He wants restoration. Restoration of their relationship with Paul and restoration of their relationship with God. And just because he calls out their sin does not mean that he can't boast about them and point out areas where they are growing and call attention to the evidence of God's grace in their church. That's very important for us to see here. That's the first two phrases, phrases at work here. I have great boldness. I'll tell you the truth about your sin, but I have great pride in you, so I can point out the areas of grace. So just because Paul is calling out their sin does not mean that at the same time he can't encourage them because he can and he is. Listen, this is the picture of how every church always is. There are always areas of improvement, always sin that needs to be addressed, but there is always evidence of God's grace too. Every church is smack dab in the middle of its own sanctification, just like every disciple who is a member of that church. And the church is getting a bad rep these days, especially on social media. And some of it is warranted. I will grant that. Some churches have really messed up, especially in areas that pertain to abuse. Abuse that they hear about, that they know about, how they handle it, how they deal with those who have been abused. Many churches have dropped the ball and seriously messed up. But for every spot and blemish of every local church, there are also many evidences of God's grace. In general, one, no true church is perfect, and two, no true church is completely wrong. God is always at work in his church to prune it, correct it, change it, transform it, and sanctify it. And he is always showing up in glorious ways that highlight his grace and give him glory. So keep that in mind 
as you hear about people deconstructing their faith as they walk away from the church. Churches have issues, and some churches have seriously messed up and therefore seriously messed up other people. I'm not denying that. But churches are also places where the grace of God is still working. And so Paul can speak boldly of the faults of the Corinthian church straight to their face, but then he can turn around and go to a pastor's conference where he could brag and boast to other pastors about what God's spirit was doing in the wicked city of Corinth. And it's like that in every church. Every Sunday, every day, the spirit is at work. And it will be like that until Jesus returns. So when you are tempted to forsake the church and you are tempted to forsake the body of Christ because it may have failed you in some way, please remember to keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. Don't just focus on the sin. Don't just focus on the mess. Don't just focus on the drama. Don't just focus on the pain. Look for grace. Too many people obsess over all the failures of the church and they seem to forget the grace of God that was everywhere. There would be less deconstructing these days if people would slow down and keep fresh in their memory the triumph of God's grace in their life and in their church. And if they would look for evidence of the Spirit's work. Because he's always working. And so, knowing that they had issues but that God's grace was still at work, Paul expresses his pride and joy to the Corinthians. Paul does not lock their identity into their sin. Instead, he locks their identity in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't treat them based on their sin. And that means that you don't have to lock your identity into that sin that you did, that you just can't seem to shake, and you think that's your identity now, something you did in the past that's terrible, and you just can't seem to shake it and get rid of it. That's not your identity, Christian. You do not have to be the sum total of all of your failures. The gospel actually frees us from seeing ourselves as either the sum total of our failures or the sum total of our successes. As believers, our identity is now linked to and rooted in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. His perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension is our life now. So your identity, Christian, is not rooted in what you have done, either successes or failures, but in what Jesus has done for you. Not in what you have done that's bad and not in what you have done that's good. Not what you have done at all. It's wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for you. That means you don't have to wrap your identity and your being into something you did in the past. Your identity is rooted in Christ, hidden in Christ, in his past, not 
your past. His past is now your past. His life of perfect obedience, that's your past. So when you look back over your life, the reality is that you look back and see the perfect life of Jesus. His past is your past now. His past of perfect obedience is your past now. The Corinthians' identity is in Christ, not in their allegiance to the super apostles, even though they have sinned in this regard and even though Paul is pointing it out. That's still not their identity. And that's why Paul can be proud of them. Murray Harris says in his commentary, various problems certainly remained in the Corinthian church, witness chapters 8 through 13, but Paul kept fresh in his memory the triumph of God's grace that he had already witnessed or experienced, a salutary lesson for all pastors. In the middle of their messy sanctification, Paul kept fresh in his memory the Spirit's work of grace in this congregation. So 2 Corinthians 7.4 is in the Bible to remind us that every church is smack dab in the middle of its own messy sanctification. None of us have arrived. No church has arrived. No church is perfect. Even if they have a famous pastor in the pulpit. Even if that famous, even that famous pastor is smack dab in the middle of his own sanctification. No matter how many books he has written, no matter how many followers he has on Twitter, he is still in the middle of his own sanctification. As Paul Tripp says, every leader is a person in the middle of his own sanctification. No matter how long we've been in ministry leadership, no matter how well trained, no matter how theologically mature, we're all still in need of future spiritual development. We all have blind spots. We're all susceptible to temptation. Each of us has character weaknesses, plural. We're all still in need of the rescuing, convicting, transforming power of the gospel. So you can fill in the blank with all these words. Pastor, leader, spouse, parent, child, student, church member. Every blank is a person in the middle of his or her own sanctification. We're all still in need of the rescuing, convicting, transforming power of the gospel. So your husband and your wife and kids, your mom and your dad and your pastors and your church staff and your deacons and your elders and your church is in the middle of their own sanctification. Remember that when people fail you. Remember that when people fail you and they drop the ball. When people let you down. We're all a mess. We're all a work in progress. We're all slowly being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who does it. He is the one who sanctifies us by his grace. So we're all in the middle of that work of God's free grace And here at Grace, if you're new to Grace, you need to know that 
we're in the middle of our own sanctification here too, okay? If you don't know that, if you don't understand that we are sinners, then you will be unnecessarily disappointed. And we don't want you to be unnecessarily disappointed. We want you to know that we're in the middle of our own sanctification and that we're probably going to drop the ball and we're probably going to let you down because we're not perfect. Let me take a moment to tell you, church, that the church staff and the elders and the deacons, that we're working hard to improve and be better and be changed and be transformed and to become more like Jesus. We know as leadership that we're in the middle of our own sanctification. And some of you know that too, don't you? You're like, I know that guy's in the middle of his own sanctification. But let me remind you, your church leadership loves you. We do. We love you. We care for you. And we're working hard to improve and be better at what we do as your leaders. We may have dropped the ball about something, probably did, and we probably will in the future. But know that we love you when we drop the ball, and we don't do it on purpose, like, let's just drop the ball and see how we can irritate them all. We don't do that. We're not perfect. We need Jesus. The elders have been working hard over the last year to become better shepherds, to be very intentional about some things. The deacons are now reading. Our deacons are awesome, by the way. The deacons are reading a new book about being deacons, just sharpening their skills to serve you better. And I can say the same thing for the church staff. We don't want to stagnate as leaders. We want to get better by God's grace. We're not a perfect church here. We have things that we can be working on, ways that we can be better, things that need adjustment. We have not arrived. That said, I do think we're the best church in town. I really do. But even though we are the best church in town, we always have things that we can be doing better. And that's okay. As long as we're working on them, as long as we stay humble and just come with the empty hands of faith to Jesus and say, we need you, and if you don't help us, we're going to mess this thing up. So yes, you could probably fill an email with areas that need improvement here. And it's very easy to only focus on those kinds of things, especially coming out of COVID. But let me encourage you, like Paul, to look for evidence of God's grace here as well. Look for evidence of God's grace here at Grace and point those out too and tell people about them. In fact, you can get on our Facebook page and let people know. We have a page on Facebook called Evidences of Grace, Santa Maria. You can get on there and point out areas that you have seen the grace of God here at Grace. Let's start boasting about what the Spirit is doing here in our church family. Start pointing out his grace. You know, I came over to the church yesterday and I walked in and I saw something on the table out there in the foyer. And so I walked over and it's something from the women. I didn't know at the time. It's something that the women's ministry put out, put out there following this weekend, Friday night in their time. And they've got little cards that they've asked uh, people to sign where they've seen God's grace and to put them in this little jar. And I came in yesterday and I was like, it's just the spirit showing off again. I didn't know they were planning on doing that. I didn't know that's what they talked about Friday night. And I come in and see that, and I'm like, that's in my sermon, talking about 
refreshing our memory in the triumph of God's grace. It's just another way that the Holy Spirit loves us, how he's working in our hearts as a church family. And to be honest with you, when that happened, and this happens a lot, I think, I think we're Jesus' favorite church in all the world. <laughs> I do, I think that sometimes. I'm like, hey, I think he loves us more than everybody else. I know it's not biblically true, but that's how I feel sometimes. When I see him at work here, working in people's lives and doing things and thinking, he knew a year ago there's going to be a sermon on grace coming up. There's going to be a weekend where they highlight the evidence of God's grace. And he's like, I'm just going to show off. It just makes me think that he loves us more than everybody else. I still think we're the best church in town. If we're not the most loved church of all, I think we're at least the best church in town. So let's start boasting about what the Spirit is doing here. And do this in all your relationships, especially in your family. Parents, don't just point out the faults and shortcomings of your children. That's easy to do, isn't it? I am so good at pointing out the shortcomings of my children. So parents, let's work hard and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us point out the evidence of God's grace that we see in our children's life. Let's affirm our children. Let's praise them. Let's encourage them. Let's say yes more than we say no. Sometimes as parents, our default reaction is just no. They just come up and we're like, no. Dad, can I? No. Dad, can I? No. Dad, can I read my Bible? No. I mean, yes. Let's heed Murray Harris's words and be like Paul and keep fresh in our memory the triumph of God's grace that we have already witnessed or experienced in our kids' lives. That's a salutary lesson for parents, too. Listen, the Spirit of God is at work in your children's hearts. Do not forget that. It's not you speak, you changing their hearts, it's the Spirit changing their hearts. Even if you drop the ball as a parent, the Spirit loves your child enough that he's still working in every single one of your children's hearts. So point out the areas where you see it. Aren't you glad parents is not riding on you to change your children? Because how's that working out for you? (laughs) How's it working out for you? I know you try to change your children's hearts. Doesn't work, does it? Because only the Spirit changes hearts. We can lead them, we can guide them, we can speak to them and correct them, but it's the Spirit. And kids, let me encourage you to open your hands to Jesus and say, Jesus, change my little sinful heart too, and he will. Then let's apply this principle to all of our relationships, marriage, family, church, work. Keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. Think about how you have seen the Holy Spirit at work in your life. In the middle of our sanctification, it is messy, right? There's mess, but there's also mercy. Which do we obsess over? When there's trouble and drama and relational strain and mess, what do you typically obsess over? Do you spend your energy focusing on all the drama? Or on God's grace. The reason that Paul is full of encouragement and joy is because he focuses on grace. And because at this moment as he's writing this letter, he's full of joy. There are other times he's not. He said that in chapter 1. We were so full of 
despair. We just wanted to die. But at this moment, as he's writing this letter, Paul's saying, I am overflowing with joy and encouragement. That encourages me. Because I think we tend to think Paul was always like, yes, praise the Lord. Yes. Like, you never struggle, Paul? Nope, never. Praise the Lord. He struggled. In chapter 1, he tells them, we, were, we despaired of life, but at this moment, in chapter 7, verse 4, he can say, I'm overflowing with joy and comfort. So look again at verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So there's the last two phrases. I'm filled with all comfort, and I'm overflowing with joy. Because Paul is keeping fresh in his memory the grace of God, he is filled with comfort, he is filled with joy, even as he suffers. In all of his affliction, he is overflowing with joy. Now you may think, well, that's just Paul. It's just who he was. He had like an extra dose of the Spirit. That's why he could do it. No, he's just like you and me. The difference is that he's learned to fight and to keep remembering God's grace. The word that's translated here as comfort can also be translated as encouragement. And we're going to look at a lot more at that next week. But don't miss what Paul is teaching us. He's full of comfort. He's full of encouragement because he's keeping fresh in his memory what God has been doing in this church. Even though he is suffering in all kinds of ways, even as he deals with this messy church, he is overflowing with joy because what he sees and hears that the Holy Spirit is doing there. I mean, who does that? Who overflows with joy in the middle of affliction? When there's stress and drama and relational strife in my life, I don't typically overflow with joy. I usually overflow with stress and fear and worry. Sorry to ruin your image of me. If I did, if I'm not overflowing with joy, then that means I have taken my focus off the gospel, off the sovereignty of God, off the character of God, and I've turned my gaze to my problems and given them functional power over my life as if my problems are more powerful than God. Duh, our problems are not more powerful than God. Duh. But maybe you need that simple, obvious reminder today. Now, when we talk about overflowing with joy, this is not to say that you have to fake it till you make it or you go around singing zippity-doo-dah or just quoting some Christian phrase or platitude over and over again that you don't really mean. And this is not to say that you don't weep or grieve or experience sadness and a broken heart. But what it means is that even as your heart is breaking, even as you go through affliction and suffering, deep down, you can rest in the sovereignty of God. His character stabilizes your heart even as it is breaking. When I'm in the middle of suffering and affliction, I usually overflow with stress, anxiety, fear, anger, worry, and not joy. 
If joy ever showed up, my emotions would be like, uh, what are you doing here, bro? That's why I need to keep fresh in my memory the grace of God that is at work in every suffering, in every affliction that I endure. And the same is true for you as well. So in verse 4, we kind of see a 3 to 1 ratio here. The one, Paul says, I am honest about y'all's sin, the mess, the drama going on at the church. But then the three outweighs the one. He says, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort and I am overflowing with joy. And so for every mess and sin and drama that you have to deal with in your life, notice Paul says, I have great boldness toward you. He's not ignoring it. He's not pushing away the problems. He's addressing them. But for every problem and drama and mess in your life, point to three other evidences of God's grace that you see. Don't just hang out in the one problem. Point to at least three other evidences of God's grace so that when there's some issue you're dealing with, you have to deal with it. Paul says, I'm speaking with great boldness towards you. He's dealing with the sin. You have to deal with those things, but at the same time, come up for air often and say, there's the grace of God I see. There's the grace of God I see. There's the grace of God I see. Now I gotta deal with this problem. I gotta come up for air again. I need some grace there. God's been good here. He's been good there. He's been good there. Deal with the problem. That is how you keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. Just come up for air and say, there, 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 there. Got to deal with the problem. Come up, there, 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 there. And the good news is that God never has to refresh in his memory that he loves us. God doesn't have to refresh his memory that he's forgiven us. So believe that this morning and rest in that truth. Christian, your heavenly father loves you. He forgives you, and His Spirit is at work in your life. In the middle of the drama, in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the broken relationships, in the middle of the not-perfect church. So trust Him. Quit focusing and obsessing over all the drama, mess, and problems, and instead, turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to your faithful loving Savior. As Robert Murray McShane said, he actually gives a 10 to 1 ratio here, not the 3 to 1. Listen to this. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly 
or the world or Satan or the flesh. For every look at your sin, for every look at your failures, for every look at your problems, for every look at your suffering, for every look at your mess, for every look at your affliction, take 10 looks at Christ. And that is how you will keep fresh in your memory the triumph of God's grace. Listen, the Spirit is at work in your life. And he is at work in this church family. Let's praise him. And let's give him all the glory. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. On Trinity Sunday, we thank you, God, that you are at work in this, your church. Of course you are. You care more about this church family than we do. And that's humbling. So thank you, Holy Spirit, how you are working in this church family and in the families that make up this church family. Thank you that you're working in our children's hearts. Help us to rest in that truth. Keep filling every chamber of our heart's spirit so that we would not give in to despair, so we would not give in to the flesh, the world, or the devil. Keep fresh in our memory the triumph of your grace so that you get all the glory and so that we would overflow with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.